Welcome to the Burn Your Mortgage Podcast, a Canadian real estate podcast that shows you how to pay off your mortgage sooner and live well while doing it. Now, here's your host, Sean Cooper. Welcome to the Burn Your Mortgage Podcast. I'm Sean Cooper, and it's great to be back for another episode. On today's show, I'll be talking to Erica Alini. Erica Alini is a personal finance reporter at the Globe and Mail and the author of the best-selling book, Money Like You Mean It, Personal Finance Tactics for the Real World. Erica started out her career in journalism as an economics reporter chronicling the ripple effects of the financial crisis of 2007-2008 for the Wall Street Journal in New York. That background is why she's always exploring how larger trends from the housing affordability crisis to the impact of climate change on insurance affects Canadians' money struggles. Her book argues that economic, social, and technological changes have complicated personal finance for everybody, but especially for millennials and Gen Z. She then provides practical tips on how young Canadians can achieve middle-class financial goals despite the challenges they face. In my interview with Erica, we discuss creative ways the dream of home ownership can still be achieved, the money bucket system and how it can help manage the cost of home ownership, and four powerful strategies to reduce the financial pain of mortgage renewal. Without further ado, here's my interview with Erica Alini. Hi, Erica. It's great to speak with you today. How are you doing? Hi, Sean. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Yes, I wanted to have you on the podcast a lot sooner. I was planning to reach out to you when your book first came out there, but I had to take a pause on the podcast, unfortunately, because I was doing this all on my own. But now that I have an editor, I definitely wanted to reach out to you and interview you. So I know that you're very busy. So I appreciate you taking some time out of your day here and super excited to talk to you about your book that came out as well as your wonderful articles that you write now for the Globe and Mail. So yes, really looking forward to this. Thanks for having me. I'm very happy to be in the podcast. And, you know, you've been a go-to source of mine on mortgages for a very long time and you feature in the book. So I'm very happy to be here and speak on your podcast. Wonderful. Thanks so much for the kind words here. So yes, let's jump into our conversation then. So the first conversation that I have for you is for anyone, I mean, you're pretty well known in the personal finance and financial related article area there, but, and I'm sure many people know that you came with a book there for, but for anyone that didn't get a chance to read your book yet, can you tell us a bit about your book and what inspired you to write it as well? Yeah. So the book is called Money Like You Mean It, Personal Finance Tactics for the Real World. It came out in December of 2021, which is hard to believe that it's already been that long, but it's meant to be a comprehensive guide to personal finance for millennials and Gen Z in Canada. So the content is Canada specific. There's so much out there, so many books that are primarily aimed at a US audience. This book is not like that. This is like Canada only, Canada first. And 
it's a very pragmatic book. It's basically your starter guide for a young adult uh, trying to set up your financial life. So really aimed at anyone, I'd say, between, you know, in their 20s and up to their 40s. But it's also a look at the wider context that's making it harder to reach some of those sort of middle class financial goals that a lot of millennials like me and Gen Z sort of grew up thinking that, you know, we're giving it for granted that we've reached these goals. And now we found ourselves struggling mightily <laughs> to reach them. And so this book is a broader look at some of the bigger forces, the socioeconomic forces that are making it harder to get there, to get where our parents, where our parents got. <laughs> no, very well said. That definitely summarizes the book very well. And you actually lead us into the next question there. So you talk about it like on the back of the book there, but there were expectations set for the last generations, like the baby boomer and generation and all that. And yeah, things have definitely change homes are a lot more expensive it takes people a lot longer to save up the down payment than it did even two decades ago there so you talk about this in the book and this is a recurring theme in your articles as well but how can millennials and gen z still achieve the middle class goals despite the challenges that they face maybe you can give some examples of the typical middle class goals expectations that people thought that they should achieve in the previous generations like baby boomer and yes how that's still possible this day and age just with the the challenges like rising cost of living and other challenges people face yeah so what am i talking about when i'm saying bigger forces and you know making it harder so it's actually much easier if people get what i'm talking about much more easily today even than when the book came out right now like everyone's talking about inflation and the cost of living and what the Bank of Canada is doing, housing prices, rents, right? That's what I'm talking about. And these things, like this has been building up for a really long time. It's now just so, obviously inflation is something, is a new problem that emerged sort of later in the pandemic. But uh, these forces, especially the erosion of housing affordability has been an issue in parts of the country for quite some time. And now it's spreading and it's getting much worse. And so everyone really is starting to becoming aware of it. And so obviously housing for young people, like some of these challenges affect everybody. So one of the things that I talk about is the fact that we've had interest rates so low by historical standards for such a long time before inflation spiked later in the pandemic. And then the Bank of Canada was forced to raise interest rates to try to get inflation under control again. Before that, we've had a very, very long time of very low interest rates. And what that does is, yes, in part, it makes it easy to take on debt, right? And so it's the reason why we have, one of the reasons sort of why we have such high household debts in Canada is because interest rates make it very cheap to borrow, right? We have huge mortgages because for a very long time, it was very cheap to borrow. Financial innovation is another sort of larger phenomenon. It's great in many ways, but the flip side of financial innovations of things like first it was credit cards emerged, and then you could pay with your phone and 
there are so many ways to borrow and it borrowing became not just cheap but also easy right and when borrowing is cheap and easy it becomes cheap and easy to follow into all kinds of debt traps that it becomes it can be very difficult to get out of Yes, like this subscription creep, I believe I've heard that term. It's, these services are like, oh, Netflix and other things, oh, only $10 a month. But the problem is when you sign up for 10, 15 of these or 20 of these services, it really adds up to a lot of money and you forget about a lot of them. So like you said, it's just so easy to spend our money these days. And studies have shown you don't get the same pain of spending. It's nowhere near like when you hand over money to someone versus swiping a credit card or even putting in the information online, like you just don't feel that kind of pain of spending that you did with cash back in the day. Absolutely. And, you know, just to continue for a second in that vein, the other sort of two sides of financial innovation is in investing. So a great upside of financial innovation and investing is, you know, sort of the democratization of investing. It's so easy to start investing in the financial markets these days. You really don't need to, you can start investing with very little money and buy good quality financial products at low cost, (laughs) at very little effort. That's great. At the same time though, it's also extremely easy if you don't know what you're doing to make financial mistakes, investing mistakes that you and lose money that you can't afford to lose, right? And so obviously some of these challenges affect all of us regardless of age. But the one that really stands out and that disproportionately affects my generation, which is millennials, and the generation after me, which is Gen Z, is housing and the incredible erosion of housing affordability, by which I mean not just home ownership sort of slipping further out of reach, but also increasingly renting becoming less increasingly unaffordable. And so, yeah, so housing, I would say, is the number one financial challenge for my generation. And the whole argument of the book is, you know, for housing and for every one of these other challenges that we face, it is possible still to achieve sort of the classic middle class goals that we grew up sort of thinking, you know, we'd achieve when there were trouble. But you have to be aware of how economic forces affect your daily life and your pocketbook. You have to know more about personal finance. You have to know what your options are. You have to know how to choose. And there's a lot more planning ahead, a lot more sort of being strategic and being creative that's required to get there, I would say, compared to previous generations, compared to the past. No, very well said. And that actually leads us perfectly into our next question here, Erica. So what are some creative ways the dream of home ownership can still be achieved? You talk about it. Again, it's a recurring theme in the articles that you write as well as your book, but examples like buying with family and friends, buying a house and renting it out like myself. Maybe you can just talk about a few of those things as well. And yes, I definitely see the challenge these days as a mortgage broker. I help people achieve the the dream of a home ownership. And yes, people definitely have to be creative these days. Like my sister was looking to buy a property on her own. So I definitely know how challenging it is. You can be earning a good wage and it can be difficult to even qualify. But yes, maybe you can talk about some of those creative ways that help people still 
get their foot in the door and start building up equity so they can eventually move up in the market there. Yeah, for sure. So home ownership is definitely is a great example too. Like, what do I mean by being strategic and being creative? So you have to approach the question of affordability sort of with being, you have to be rational and you have to have your eyes wide open, right? So the first step is to understand how much house you can afford, right? This is something that used to be an issue just for those who wanted to buy a house. Like it used to be a question of how much house can you buy, right? Now it's become an issue for renters too. It's like, how much can you spend to keep a roof over your head? Because I'm seeing so many people who are, the rent is so high, they don't have any money left whatsoever at the end of the month, and they don't have any kind of financial safety net. And as a renter, that's very precarious and that's very dangerous. So the classic general rule to gauge that, and something that many of your listeners are probably familiar with, is that your housing cost should be around 30% of your before tax income. Now, It's a valid rule for sure. It's a little bit tricky because people aren't used to budgeting with their gross income. (laughs) Generally, you budget with your take-home pay. And it's also, you know, what are your housing costs? Like people might think, oh, my mortgage. That's not, that's like by far not your only housing cost. You have to think property taxes if you're buying. You have to think utilities. All of that should be in that 30%. And some, you know, likewise, if you're renting, that would be rent plus plus utilities. A simpler rule that I really like, and it comes from personal financial planner, Shannon Lee Simmons, and it works equally. It's the same rule, whether you're renting or owning, is try to keep your fixed expenses at 55% of your after-tax income. So I find that that's like a more intuitive rule for a lot of people. And it's much easier to understand what fixed expenses is. And obviously housing for most people is by far the largest fixed expense. So that's really like the rule you have to live by. You cannot go beyond that 55% or you're going to end up in trouble. Now, how can you buy a house, become a homeowner and still be within that 55%? Assuming that, you know, obviously you don't have the privilege and fortune of having a family that can help you financially. So the traditional solution to that used to be sort of buy elsewhere, right? Like if you cannot find a house that you can't afford, wherever you are, move. And, you know, that used to be the classic solution for people here in Toronto. And, you know, the saying was drive until you can buy. Now with the pandemic, there's been such an exodus of people outside of Toronto that the discount for you know moving out of Toronto has shrunk dramatically. So many people are looking all over southern Ontario and they're failing to find something that's reasonably priced that they can afford and that still allows them to come into work even not every day, but you know, a few times a week or even a few times a month that makes sense within Southern Ontario. So buying elsewhere increasingly has become maybe buying a different province, going quite further afield. And unfortunately, that is not a solution that works. It's not an acceptable compromise for everybody. You may have a job that physically requires you to be in a big city or, you know, your ability to have a career and your earning potential is closely tied to a large city. Or maybe you have family in the city 
you don't want to move out. There's all kinds of reasons why people are limited in sort of where they can move to. So the other sort of broad strategy to try to improve affordability is to sort of bring many incomes together, right? There's strength in numbers. That's the basic idea. And that means teaming up with somebody else who also has an income and maybe your incomes combined can meet that 55% rule. And that generally means maybe you team up with your family and that's a multi-generational home. You buy maybe with parents, with your in-laws, a bigger home that you can live in together. Maybe the in-laws are ready to downsize and they go live in the basement or, you know, there's all kinds of arrangements. Or maybe you buy with friends and you co-own with them. But the basic idea is bringing together more incomes so that the house price to income ratio makes sense again. And then finally, and then I guess that the other creative solution is also bringing in an income. Another way of increasing the income is with the classic sort of the mortgage helper suite, so-called. And that means buying a house where you're able to rent part of the house, which is you know what you've been doing Sean. And what there is to know about that is that it should be a legal secondary suite, right? Like if it's a legal secondary suite, and if you have an arm's length rental agreement, then that could make it easier for you to qualify for a mortgage because the lender will take into account at least part of your rental income. Yes, that's a good point. If I could just jump in there. Yes. So if you're buying a house that you're able to do that there if it's a legal suite with like a separate entrance kitchen as well as a bathroom there but for example if you're buying a condo mainstream lenders typically won't allow you to include like if you're renting out a room or something like that there so yeah that definitely helps it can help you afford maybe purchase price of fifty thousand dollars or more there but yeah it only really works in like house instead of a condo there Yeah. And to be clear, I mean, you can still own a condo and have a roommate, right? And then that roommate pays you rent and it still helps you with your mortgage. The problem is that solution won't help you to buy the house. It will help you pay the mortgage, but not qualify for the mortgage. That's great. Yeah. And then just one thing I wanted to add about co-ownership, whether you're co-owning with family members or friends, is that it really pays to get a lawyer involved to sort of iron out house rules and get them in writing, to have a system for making decisions for issues and things that you can't foresee, like a system for how are we going to tackle that in a way that we're all okay with. And then another decision you're going to have to make is whether you're going to own the house in jointly as joint tenants or as tenants in common. And that really has nothing to do with renting and the word tenant. But joint tenancy is generally how, you know, couples own a home together. And it's equal shares. And if one person passes away, then ownership bypasses probates and passes on to the other owners. And joint tenants in common, you can have unequal shares of ownership. And If one person dies, then their ownership shares goes through their estate. And so it really pays to talk to an estate lawyer about these things who has experience in in exactly this area. 
That's some great advice there. And yes, it's important if you're buying with someone just to realize that the arrangement isn't forever. So yes, have that conversation about the exit strategy up front there, because otherwise, if this is like a friend or, or family member, you don't want to ruin that relationship. So it's good to when, when you're buying a property together, just to have all that figured out in advance. And like you said, have everything in writing so that you avoid any disagreements later on, because you wouldn't want to ruin your like relationship with a family member or friendship there. So yes, very well said. Thanks so much for the great answer there. And yes, I read about something interesting in your book there. You're talking about the money bucket system. Maybe you could talk a bit about how you use that yourself, uh, Erica, in, in your own life and how that can be helpful in managing the cost of home ownership. Yeah. So the, the money bucket system is a way of budgeting and managing your expenses and savings goals without a budget. And so the idea is you use multiple bank accounts or investment accounts for, for savings, and you assign a job to each account as if it was like a broad budgeting category, right? So instead of using a spreadsheet, you have many so-called money buckets or accounts, and then you set up transfers, either one-off or automatic transfers to each of these accounts. So this can work really well to manage expenses related to home ownership. Everybody can think of, you know, paying off the mortgage is a no-brainer. <laughs> Canadians have a very solid track record of not missing their mortgage payments, but there's all kinds of other things that really land people in trouble often. So one is property taxes. So especially if maybe you've put down a bigger down payment and the bank is not automatically withholding, you know, an amount for property taxes every month that's a big chunk of change that you're going to have to pay infrequently, right? Like it's not a monthly expense. And so it catches people off guard sometimes. And so it can be very helpful to set up a savings account for your property taxes. And you just sort of, you know, more or less how much it's going to be. You divide it by 12 months and you set up automatic transfers to that account. And when the bill comes due, you just withdraw from that account. You know, there's utilities that sometimes catch people off guard. So for example, in Toronto, we have waste and water. They're not charged monthly. They come due quarterly. And it can be several hundred dollars every so often. So that's another one that I usually treat as a monthly expense. You know, sometimes you think some utilities allow you to pay infrequent bills sort of monthly, but that's not always an option. And when it's not an option, it's very handy. Again, have another savings account and then you know more or less how much it's going to be. So every month you put some money towards that so that it's never a surprise. And then the trickiest part of home ownership is thinking ahead to the and, and about the inevitable repairs, right? That you're going to have to take care of. So I'm not talking about saving towards renovation or upgrades, which obviously, you know, the money bucket system works great for that too. You can just set up a savings account and call it renovation. And then you save into that, but repairs. And so it's really helpful to try to estimate how much you might spend on repairs every year. If you've been a homeowner for a while, you probably have an idea. If not, you know, estimates vary depending on, you know, how there are pretty good estimates online that are based on the square footage of your house. So you can do a, 
a quick Google search. Uh, there are also some older rules of thumb in personal finance that are based on the price of the home. Because houses are so expensive right now, it's honestly better to go with square footage estimates. But, you know, get an idea and then have this sort of like minor emergency fund that's specifically dedicated to your house. And that way, you know, you won't necessarily have to tap into your line of credit, which, you know, now might carry an interest rate or seven or eight percent. You'll have this little pool of cash that you can tap into to help you with the repairs that come up all the time, no matter how new your house is. Well, that's some great advice there because, yeah, like especially when you own a house there, there can be some really big ticket items like the furnace and the roof and the windows. And yes, if you don't plan them for them in advance, then they can really sneak up on you there and you can end up having to put that on your line of credit. So yeah, it's a really great advice to plan ahead there. And yeah, especially with some of these expenses, like if you choose to pay the home insurance on like an annual basis, sometimes you might might not have the option of paying monthly, but yeah, having that money going into a savings account so that it's ready when that annual payment comes out, especially helpful. And, and yes, I can say firsthand the water and, and waste bill can be very expensive and it's sent triannually in, in the city of Toronto, which means three times a year. And I've seen some of these amounts, four or $500. It's pretty crazy there. And yeah, you can actually get it switched to monthly, but you have to jump through ton of hoops like I had to do. I mean, it's not a ton of hoops, but they ask for you to send some forms so you get it switched to monthly by fax or drop it off in person. I sent it by fax, but it got lost apparently. So I went to a city office and dropped it off in person. And I guess they switched me to it monthly there. But yes, definitely for those non-regular monthly bills, definitely important to put money aside because they can really sneak up on you later on when you least expect it there. So great. And I just want to wrap up with one final question that I think will be really relevant for a lot of the listeners. And you've written at least a couple articles on this I've seen for the Globe and Mail here. So yes, a, a stress point for people with their mortgage coming up for renewal is they perhaps are like they're they locked into a fixed rate and then their mortgage is coming up and they have like a low fixed rate maybe of like two three percent and then they're seeing mortgage rates in like the five six percent like doubling in some cases there so can you talk about some strategies that you discussed in the article there when you interviewed a bunch of people in the mortgage industry here but yes i can talk about some strategies people can use these days to make their payment more affordable if the mortgage is coming up for renewal so they don't have to eat craft dinner for the next five years or however long their mortgage term is. Yeah. So lots of people are losing sleep about their mortgage renewal right now. And it's another perfect example of how it pays off to plan ahead, do your research, be strategic, and know what your options are. And so Starting with planning ahead, it's a really good idea. And this is one of some of the advice that I've heard from the mortgage professionals I've talked to about this is try to understand what you're facing, what kind of mortgage renewal rate you're looking at, and what your new payment might be. It's a ballpark. And then see what kind of changes, like what does that mean for your day-to-day -day budget, right? So try to test drive that new rate and that new mortgage payment and see if it's manageable or not. Now, if it's not manageable, then one of the options and one of the, sort of the most obvious things that people are doing 
is to see if you can lengthen your amortization. Now, if you've been you sort of if you're ahead of schedule with your amortization, and the amortization is sort of the total amount of time that it will take you to pay off your mortgage in full. So for most people at the start of, you know, when they take out the mortgage for the first time, it would be 25 years or perhaps you know, more and more commonly 30 years. So if you've been aggressively paying off your mortgage, maybe with accelerated payments, or maybe you've made a few lump sum payments towards your mortgage, you're ahead of schedule, right? And so you can go back to the original amortization schedule without refinancing your mortgage. And that's an easy option to give yourself a little bit of breathing room. So it means that it will take you, you know, you'll lose sort of that that advantage. But if that gives you a little bit of breathing room right now, when you're financially stretched, it may be worth it. And even if you're not ahead of schedule, (laughs) you know, even if say maybe you know, you have a 25-year amortization and you're coming, you're at the end of your first five-year mortgage, you have some wiggle room to re-extend the amortization. Now that would require refinancing, which has, you know, comes with some costs that you should definitely ask your mortgage broker or mortgage professional about. But again, once again, you know, stretching out the amount of time that will take you to pay off the mortgage in full means smaller, you know, monthly payments. And so that could give you just, you know, the the financial breathing room that you need right now. This, however, is not an option if you are with a variable rate with fixed payments and your amortization has already stretched beyond the original amortization schedule, then you really have no wiggle room there. So it's important to, to highlight that. Then another strategy I thought was really interesting. The obvious thing to do is if your mortgage is coming up in the next like three to four months is to get pre-approved and get a rate hold so that if the Bank of Canada, not just the Bank of Canada, but if rates rise more in the next few months, you know, you're okay, you've locked in something. But if your mortgage is coming up, say in the next five, six months, one possible strategy is to still get pre-approved and get a rate lock. And then, you know, if rates do rise, just break your mortgage and take that rate that you locked in. In an environment of rising rates, mortgage penalties aren't such a concern, even if you have a fixed rate mortgage. So it's not going to cost you all that much to break your mortgage. And yeah, and that way, you at least uh, protected yourself from the last few rates, rate increases before renewal. And then another thing that a lot of people are doing is they're going fixed. You know, very few people are brave enough to go to go variable right now, and very understandably so. But they're not locking. Few people are locking into the traditional sort of five-year term, and they're choosing shorter terms. And it tends to be, so I've heard from several mortgage brokers that the three-year term, a three-year fixed is very popular right now, maybe two-year fixed. Very few people are going for one-year fixed just because the rate premium for that (laughs) tends to be very high. I did a quick search last night and the difference that I was seeing in the interest rate for a a fixed rate one-year mortgage was almost one percentage 
higher than a three-year fixed, whereas the difference between a three-year fixed and a five-year fixed was half a percentage point. So the three-year fixed looks to a lot of people like a good compromise where you know it gives you a little bit of stability and tranquility in the short term, but also the ability to renew, hopefully at a lower rate, if interest rates start to decline in a little while. Great. Well, thanks so much for your insightful answer into that, Erica. And, and yes, with mortgage clients of mine, a strategy that I've heard as well is perhaps extending the amortization during periods of high interest rate. And then when your mortgage comes up for renewal, if rates are lower than then you can shorten the amortization to get caught up. So that's one good strategy. And something important to be aware of is if you have a specific type of mortgage called a collateral charge mortgage, now that's typically when you have a home equity line of credit attached to it, but some mortgages like the ones offered by TD and Tangerine, all of them are collateral charge mortgages. You're able to, with a lot of lenders, extend the amortization to... 25 years. And the benefit of that is you don't have to pay the refinance costs associated with that and you get a more competitive interest rate. So yeah, there's all sorts of strategies. So like Erica said, figure out what your payment is, is going to look like. And if that's affordable for you, a mortgage professional like myself can help you with that. But yes, know that there are all sorts of strategies that can be used. And we've talked about a few of them there. But yeah, definitely make sure your payment's manageable because you don't want to be eating craft dinner for the next five years. That's definitely not something healthy to be doing there. So wonderful. So thank you so much for being on the podcast, Erica. It was great chatting with you today and appreciate you sharing all your personal finance and real estate and mortgage insight with our listeners. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me, Sean. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Burn Your Mortgage podcast. Besides being a podcast host, I'm also an independent mortgage broker. If you or anyone you know, family, friends, coworkers, or neighbors could ever use any unbiased mortgage advice or a second opinion, feel free to reach out. Email me at sean, that's S-E-A-N at burnyourmortgage.ca or call or text me at 647-867-3711 for a free mortgage consultation. Also, be sure to head on over to www.burnyourmortgage.ca and sign up for my free weekly newsletter. As a small token of my appreciation, You'll be able to download my ultimate mortgage checklist on choosing the perfect mortgage. I look forward to hearing from you and helping you with all your mortgage needs. Once again, thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Burn Your Mortgage Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and leave a rating. Until next time, happy mortgage burning. <laughs>